Welcome to the Magician and the Fool podcast. This is episode number 41. My name is Dominic. I am one of the co-hosts. The other host is Janice. You'll hear from him shortly. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking to the very multi-talented T. Susan Chang to talk about tarot, divination, and her new, well, one of her new books, 36 Secrets. You can find more about Susie Chang on her website, tsusanchang.com. She has a blog there. You can also find a tarot class that she runs. She also has an interesting shop where she sells perfumes and tarot cases and other items. Susie has a podcast, the Fortune's Wheelhouse podcast, which I think many of our listeners will find very interesting. So if you haven't listened to that, uh, give it a try. You can find it wherever podcasts are found. Her books are Tarot Deciphered, 36 Secrets, and Tarot Correspondences. Susie is not a one-trick pony, though. She is a musician, a lover of languages, and I don't know if she considers herself one, but I would say a sorcerer, sorceress, perhaps. And if you know Susie, she's always fun to listen to, very charismatic, a lot of energy, and so um, we really enjoyed this one. We want to say thank you to our Patreon supporters, as always, for helping cover the expenses of the show. It's a thing. Podcasts cost a little bit of money, so we appreciate it very much. If you would like to help support us, please head over to Patreon and just type in The Magician and the Fool Podcast and you'll find us there. The great thing about our supporters is they support us without any coaxing. We don't have time to really put together all sorts of crazy content. I know a lot of people have some really cool benefits and rewards on their Patreon. We don't, and our Patreon supporters are still very generous in helping us out. So for the month of May, in honor of Mercuralia, which is the Festival of Mercury, which is held on May 15th, traditionally, we are going to offer anyone who is a patron in the month of May a complimentary three-card tarot reading from Janice. Janice is a long-time tarot reader, decades, and a fun fact, I don't know if any of you remember Miss Cleo from the 90s, but he may or may not have worked for her at one point. I don't know if that helps or hurts his case, but he's a pro, and like I said, anyone in the month of May who is a patron will get a three-card reading regardless of the level of your support. So we will check in early June to see who was on board in May, and we will reach out to you for that reading. And hopefully in the future we'll do a little bit more, but like I said, we are busy with families and jobs, and the podcast kind of stretches us to our limit as far as time, but we do want to uh, show our appreciation and honor 
Hermes Mercury. Having said that, we dedicate this episode to Hermes and Asclepius. And may the merits we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings, so they, together with us, will equally realize awakening. This is the Orphic Hymn to Hermes. Clithimu Hermea, Dios Angela, Maya dosuie, Pancrates etorechon, Enagonia coiran ethneton, Elfron, Poikilobule, Diactere arge fonta, Deno pedile, Filandre, Logutne toisi profeta, Gymnazin hosgeires, Doliais tapatais trophiuche, Hermenel panton ker dempore, Lisi merimne, hosgeires eneges erenes hoplon amemthes. Co ruciota macar eriunia, poikino muthe, Ergasiais eparoge, Filethne toisen anankais, Glosses denon hoplon tose basmion anthropoisi, Cluthimu elhomenu, biotu telos eslon opadzon, Ergasiesi, Logucharisin, Caimnemo Sunesin. Beautiful. Thank you for that. That's <laughs> awesome. Welcome. Love that hymn. It's it was the first one I ever learned, of course, you know, but it's a it's a particularly nice one. Welcome to the show, everyone. We are very excited and happy to have C C Tusen Hang. Welcome to the show. We are extremely happy and excited to have T. Susie Chang with us today to talk about tarot, divination, and her new book. Welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, yeah. We're really excited and and glad you agreed. I think you're a wealth of knowledge, a great resource, and um, just excited to kind of pick your brain. So... Yeah, I've listened to your show for a really long time. And I was just saying before we went on air that, you know, you guys get tremendous guests and you ask really great questions. And uh, it's it's an honor to be here. Well, you are added to the list of tremendous guests. So, <laughs> <laughs> so for I'm assuming most of our audience knows who you are, but you never know. So um, if you don't mind, would you kind of briefly give a rundown of of who you are, how you got into the esoteric um, practices, uh, tarot specifically, and and we'll go from there. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I always have a bit of trouble figuring out who I am. Um, I think that's, that's why we're all in this business. Right. <laughs> but uh, I actually made a map uh, yesterday because I, I cannot keep track of all the things I do. Uh, usually I try to keep it down to six or eight, but um, right now it's kind of blowing up. Most of what I do centers around tarot. I would say about 80%, 90% of what I do centers around tarot in one form or another. Some people know me from the Fortune's Wheelhouse podcast, which is the uh, esoteric tarot podcast I host with Mel Moline. 
I write books on tarot. Um, there's Tarot Correspondences, um, which was my first sort of 777 for tarot book in 2018. And uh, then there's 36 Secrets, my book on the minors, and then Tarot Deciphered, which is essentially the podcast between hardcovers. Um, and then let's see, I teach tarot. I have an online tarot course called The, the Living Tarot. Uh, I do readings. Um, I do, I make tarot cases. I have sort of an Etsy shop where I do that. I make astrologically based perfumes. I uh, I teach at Smith College doing a, a writing course for undergraduates. I, um, let's see, I'm just rotating my map here. <laughs> um, oh, and I have, I usually have, you know, I try to write books in the fall, but I, I, I usually have some kind of like workshops or teaching or other things going on. So currently what's on the docket is um, going to be collaborating or helping out Jack Grail in his upcoming uh, Homeric course, which is basically a reading of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I'm going to be doing my sort of like linguistic commentary on the Greek with him for that in my intellectually irresponsible way. <laughs> so that will be going on for the next year or so. So that's, you know, another side project. <laughs> that's a super cool side project. Um, yeah. So what's your, so you have a music background, right? Oh uh, yeah. That's one of my backgrounds. Yeah. I started out as a um, pianist, I guess, actually as violinist. And then I shifted to piano um, and uh, I worked studied piano and went to Juilliard pre-college from ages 10 to 18 or so. But, you know, that was just the very, very, very first beginning of things for me. And like a lot of people, you know, that's a real winnowing process going there. So those who don't become recording artists kind of tend to have midlife crisis you know, about magic at the age of 20 <laughs> and, uh, and uh, midlife crisis about music at the age of 20 and uh, and give it up. So I kind of followed that pattern, but then kind of got back into it with various other instruments, played the saxophone for a while, you know, just uh, sort of post-traumatic recovery <laughs> music. <laughs> How do you feel like that, that strong musical background influenced your thinking and, and the way you approach divination and magic? Well, it's interesting because mm, I haven't really actually thought about that, but it's a really interesting question because there's something about um, music that that is actually quite like divination and magic in that there's an extremely technical side and then there's a side that's extremely not, right? You know, so for example, one of the things that I would do in school when I was learning sort of the technical side of music of course, there were scales and, you know, just hours and hours of practice every day, but also just learning a lot about the structure of music, you know, and learning to do seven against four polyrhythms and read five clefs at once and, you know, do really hard stuff with music. But then at the moment of performance, of course, you leave it all behind, you know, mm -hmm. it's... um you leave it all behind and it's just sort of in there in the background informing what you do. So that's the analogy I actually use all the time with people when it comes to these <laughs> esoteric correspondences that I seem to have become associated with. Um, you know, they're there, the tables are there, you study them, you, you learn from them, but then when you go into the oracular moment itself, you know, you do you you kind of let it 
subside and you let what's most important rise to the fore. Great, great. Yeah, for me, um, I have a pretty strong martial arts background going back many uh, years. And so it's it sounds very familiar. Um, you have yes. to just keep building on that foundation. Oftentimes, I mean, people want to skip ahead really quickly. I mean, my, my daughter's start a piano and she wants to just start playing songs right from the beginning. And it's like, no, you have to, <laughs> there's a pretty rigorous foundational process. You have to, you have to kind of set up first before you get to the fun stuff. Um, yes. And then there's always the danger that because, you know, we're all, or so many of us have a sort of an addiction to being good students, you know, you can kind of get lost in the technicalities mm. and, forget to let go when it's time to let go. So there's that as well. Do you guys find, Janice, I want you to jump in too, because you're a lifelong tarot reader. Do you feel like with the, oh, and he's gone. Uh-oh. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> he's like, no, I guess, I'm not going to jump in. <laughs> I guess that's the answer. Um, well, we'll start with you. And then when he pops back on, we'll ask him. But do you feel like people jump head first into the tarot without setting up a strong foundation first? Well, yes. Um, but I actually don't think that's a problem. Okay. Um, I'm, you know, I, I was sort of like when we were doing pre-show chat, we were talking about questions and things we could talk about. And I brought up the idea of rigor versus ease. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I, when I, when I wrote that down, I was like, Oh no, everyone will find out that I'm not rigorous. <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> because I'm really not. I mean, there's a there's a part of me that feels like there is no such thing as a novice tarot reader. I say that a lot because I believe that that there's something to be said for just the willingness to engage in the process, regardless of how hard you've studied or what you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something to be said about um, about just being open to what. Tempting fate, literally, you know, often with the cards. And I think that something happens in the dynamic between the client and the reader in the need for the client for advice and the willingness of the reader to help. It's almost like an, a polarization, a magnetic current in which something arises. So, you know, I, I tend to be of the view that um, <laughs> I tend to be of the view that it's it's possible to read without any preparation whatsoever, but that's just what gets you started. And then over time, you know, you build on that, you build your tarot worldview until it encompasses everything, you know, and then, you know, you keep trying to learn and grow until you have, well, there is no endpoint, right? It just keeps going. Mm -hmm. So uh, in general, I tend to feel with magical practice and, you know, this is why I say everyone will find out I'm not rigorous. <laughs> that uh, I I think that I encounter more people who are daunted by the um, by their own unmagicality. You know, than people who are posing. You know, people who are more um, afraid to even begin. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just the demographic I work with. So you know, my my whole sort of way of talking to people is to try and just talk them off the ledge and, you know, get people to feel like they, they have the confidence and the ability to start on this path, no matter how how unprepared, uninitiated, and um, illegitimate they may be. 
So, you know, that's, that's my view. And yet at the same time, doesn't keep me from practicing my scales all the time. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. I, I was going to push back a little. You, you said that you're not rigorous, but I think your, your consistency counts for rigor. You seem to be really immersed in this world and have been for a while. And I, I would suspect that you don't, you don't skip a beat. Like every day you're looking at things and, and doing some stuff. Well, I think that what I do think is essential is that whatever you do and wherever you're coming from, no matter how unprepared or uninitiated or illegitimate you are, I do think you have to give it your best, you know, mm -hmm. whatever that means for you. And everyone comes with a different box of skills and aptitudes and abilities. And I think there's something to be said for doing it with your whole heart. Yeah. So that I would certainly agree. Cool. And Janice, are you back? So I want to speak for a minute to what you just said about the dynamic between um, a reader and a, and a client, because that's something I find very interesting. Uh, so could you, before I respond to it, could you recapitulate that? Oh, yeah. So what I was saying that I was saying that I believe that when it comes to readings, there's a dynamic that arises between the client and the reader, where something about the need of the client for help and the willingness of the reader to help combine and create almost a current or an electric current or a polarity in which the answers arise. It's not, you know, it's not either's responsibility alone. But, um, and I believe that that's possible regardless of how much, you know, training or study you have as a diviner, I think um, a lot of it is actually getting out of the way. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I'm actually of the school that the cards are always right. It's mm -hmm. just me the, too. Yeah. Diviner's yeah. interpretive ability, which is a hermetic characteristic because, it, it, you know, um, mm -hmm. one of the, one of the, one of the titles attributed to Hermes by Plato is Hermenuetes. I probably butchered that, or Hermeneutes. <laughs> you know what I mean? That which is which is what we get hermeneutics from. Yes, and in the Orphic Hymn we have Hermene Pantone, which is her, you know, interpreter of all. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. And so for me, divination is less an act of quote unquote connecting with the other, although the, the connection is important and all these other things mm -hmm. that people make to trying to make divination about. It is more an act of interpretation, of being able to accurately interpret the signs before you. But I think that extends even to all divination. I mean, really, mm -hmm. the entire world is one big book filled with, filled with living s signs. And if you can learn to become a good interpreter, you can read the signs everywhere you go and everything you see. I 100% agree with that. And it's interesting, you know, on the Kabbalistic tree of life, there's a way of representing that, you know, the, um, I don't, I don't know how much Kabbalah you guys get into, but on the sort of uh, seventh and eighth spheres of the 10 sphere tree of life, that's Netzach and Hod, they are known as the spheres of prophecy. And, uh, and, <laughs> but they're different kinds of prophecy. So Netzach, which is in Hermetic Kabbalah ascribed to Venus, is kind of an, that sort of ecstatic download that people get from time to time. Uh, whereas Hod, which is in Hermetic Kabbalah ascribed to Hermes, to Mercury, is indirect download. It is interpreting. It is divination. It is working by signs. And there's something about that, um, that sphere 
that is humble in a way. You know, you kind of put your head down and you don't assume that you have the answers. You just use what you've got to try and make sense of what's appearing in the world around you. Yeah, and I think I completely agree with that. And there, there's a there's a uh, northern uh, parallel to that because in the northern mysteries you have runic divination, and then on the other hand you have scyther or spay, which is which is uh, presided over by Freya, who's the northern manifestation of of the Venus principle. And so, so they're really just as you know, Odin is the is the mercurial principle within the northern mysteries and he presides over uh galder which is you know the runic divination so well i you made a really good point there because there are those two forms of divination and i think those two forms are complementary too i think that i think that they work best in synthesis mhm mhm absolutely absolutely yeah i've been thinking a lot about the idea of sacrifice um, in the context of divination lately. Well, thinking is probably too strong a word. I've been sort of, you know, (laughs) musing and bullshitting (laughs) on the idea of (laughs) sacrifice uh, in the context of ritual and, um, and readings. One thing that I've been playing with this idea is that what we do in divination is we look for meaning, right? That's one of the things we do. It's one of the ways we combat the modern-day affliction of meaninglessness. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one of the things that I think is that I like to imagine that every reading is a form of sacrifice and that what we sacrifice on the altar of the oracle is doubt. The idea that meaning and doubt exist in this kind of inverse ratio. And that's why when we do a reading – we can never ask the same question twice, right? Because if you take back your sacrifice, you take back your doubts, then you have to give back the meaning, (laughs) you know? And that's something that has kind of shaped a lot of the way I, I kind of conduct my own praxis these days. I love what you said here about the sacrifice. And uh, it's just, it's interesting to me too, because it illuminates how, there we all have, you know, genuine readers, and I think that there are not that many. But genuine readers, um, you know, we all have these certain things that it you just. I think they're developmental milestones of understanding that you reach, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> where it's just very clear, like the fact that everything is speaking, um, and you just right. have to learn to listen, which is like and so, to ask good questions too. And to ask good questions. The art of asking the question is so huge. It's so it's huge. huge. I mean, yeah. I often find when I'm reading for people, and I read for people every week, you know, ha- uh, half a dozen to a dozen people a week, and um, and I often find that people are asking questions they they don't actually want to know the answer to, <laughs> yeah? because there's all if there's only one right answer, it's probably the wrong question. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, and then there, you know, then there's always the phenomenon of the Cassandra complex, but that's an right. entire, you know, converse book long conversation in itself. But what I was going to say is the point of it being a sacrifice is uh, very big to me. And this is why um, if you look at divinity, so this is one of my pet gripes, you could say, <laughs> here we go. But- <laughs> <laughs> So if you look at divination around the world historically, even to the present day, it is usually conducted within the auspices of a religious tradition or temple. Um, But in the Western world, with the sort of um, 
deliberate fissure that are that was forced um, between the esoteric and the exoteric traditions. And there's repair work to it being done in our age on that and has been for at least 100 years, maybe 200 max. But still, I mean, the exoteric and the esoteric branches of, of spiritual tradition were separated in the West. And because of that, um, and, be, and also because of a sort of, um, you know, Abrahamic, I even hate saying Abrahamic because I love Abraham, but, you know, <laughs> But, but you know, the Abrahamic influence, which uh, disparages divination, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it created it, it turned it into this sort of bastard art being seen as a bastard art in the West when it is not divination traditionally. Like if you look at Ifa, for instance, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It is yes. always in the context of a spiritual or religious tradition, period. It is a spiritual practice it is a extension of the gods and it should be treated with reverence every single divination i do every divination i do is offered up beforehand as a sacrifice to hermes mm-hmm. you know and yes that, and that's from my whole life that is till the day i die free <laughs> divination even if it's just a me divination even if i'm just taking out the petite lenormand and laying out a few cards i don't skip that part okay because it's sacred Yes, I think that reverence is 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 a critical ingredient in the sense that we cannot do this work if we are not connected to the world around us, right? You know, if we're not connected to the anima mundi, if we don't recognize that we are part and parcel of the whole cosmos, then if we are separate, which so much of our upbringing encourages us to think of ourselves as separate, we can't do this work. Right. And the gift of prophecy is given by the gods themselves. Right. When you make that sacrifice, see, this goes back. It's weird how runes are creeping in here, but this goes back to the rune of, of Gibo, Gebo or Gifu, which means gift. But a gift is a sacrifice. The print, it's, and, the, that's the, and the rune is the shape of a cross, just like you could say the Christian cross even. The idea of sacrifice is an exchange. It's, it's, a, it's a dialectical exchange between one thing and another. You know, think of Christmas. We exchange gifts you know yes and so we offer up to the gods and in their mercy they send down upon us their gifts and i believe that those of us who have some kind of oracular inclination or or some kind of prophetic gift that comes from and is the manifestation of a divine principle within our soul and so by do by enacting the sacrifice we actually um, give reverence to the divine principle within our soul, which is rooted vertically in a deity. Yes, and so great is the gift of the runes or the interpretive object, whatever it may be. So concentrated is that power that even a god has to sacrifice for it. You know, if you think True. about the the myth of Odin, he had to sacrifice himself to himself just to receive the ruins <laughs> is, is the way it's put. It's so true. It's so true. And even, even uh, Hermes is, you know, called the companion of the feast, the bull, mm-hmm. the bull slaughterer. We could think of the sacrifice of Prometheus where he um, taught mankind how to perform the art of sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And also of course tricked, you know, tricked the gods and made it so that humankind would be able to keep the meat, which would in turn nourish them. So he he enacted this twofold, he performed this twofold act. And I think that what's implicit in these myths is the idea of A, 
um, that that um, sacrifice is a gift given to us by the gods, and B, it's meant to benefit both God and human being. And C, when we, I think, when we treat divination as a prophetic sacrifice, then we take ourselves out of the equation and we enable ourselves to act as an instrument for something greater than us that can move through us and not only speak through us, but can actually sort of, it's almost like saying, um, so I did my taxes recently and there was this whole drama um, and they, <laughs> they had, they had me, um, they had me uh, download this program, download it onto my computer and then turn it on. And like, they could actually see my desktop. Oh Yes. And mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I, they, they can do that at my work, but I, I was kind of creeped out that they could do that with, but anyway, the whole point is they were able to, when I downloaded this program, go into my desktop and be able to click around on this, on the site and click around on my tax forms. That's kind of like, you know, you do this with the God and the other aspect of it is they can enter into your mind and direct your perception to the things in the reading that show that that uh they, they can direct your per- the god can direct your perception to the information in the reading that in turn the client needs to receive yes and i think that has you know that sort of uh, emphasizes or underscores the fact that you can't hold on too tight you know because you have to leave room for the god to breathe and you and get your ego out of it i think that's absolutely right and there's also besides sacrifice and sometimes you could even say that you're sacrificing your own ego at the same time, you know, besides sacrifice, another sort of hermetic side of divination is the idea that you take it lightly as a, almost like a game, you know, there's, he is the God of games and trickery as well as even, even in that story you're telling about the origin of sacrifice in the Orphic hymn, he's called, um, Let's see. It's like So you delight in deceit and trickery. And to me, that is part of that um, headspace that we enter into with a reading where it matters a great deal and it matters not at all at the same time. It's a games mentality to some extent. And this is something I, I picked up from Marie-Louise von Franz, who is a Jungian I've been reading a lot lately. Uh, for this project I did. And uh, the idea that you, uh, if you read Jung's introduction to the I Ching, he says something about uh, how you enter into it in all earnestness, but then whatever happens, happens. You accept the consequences, right? And I think that's that's quite difficult to do very often because it's a balance you have to maintain because the person who's coming to you I always say nobody comes to tarot readers just because everything's going great. You know, they're they're invested and they have some very important thing they want to talk to you about. But that's why they're coming to you, because you're the one who can stand there in the center of this balance and engage in it in all earnestness, but also let go of the consequence, whatever it is. There's a, you know, it's sort of like at the end of a chaos magic ritual, right? You would say does not matter, need not be. Same idea. Well, yeah, it's the magician and the fool. It's mm-hmm. because yes. you know the magician and the fool are really two sides of one mystery, a two-faced mystery. And um, I think that what you said about the about the game aspect is totally huge because most divination systems, not all, but most do originate, at least in the West, I should say. But even even in other areas, they do originate 
in games yes you know and there's nothing wrong with that it it actually is a mystical reality there's a there's a deeper truth that's hidden there in the idea of the juggler absolutely absolutely a hundred percent i mean i think you know if you look at any sort of oracular system there's a game equivalent of it we have playing cards you know and we have tarot we have checkers, we have geomancy, we have, you know, dice used in both contexts, we have bones used in both contexts. So, you know, they, it's just two sides of the same literal coin. I mean, pickup sticks, that's... Yes, <laughs> yes, you know? for your Yara stocks. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, so it just goes on. And I think, I think yeah. that having that playful attitude when engaging it is super important too. And also it goes back to, I love that you brought up the Jungian aspect. I love Marie-Louise von Franz. Mm-hmm. She is, uh, I don't feel she gets the due she deserves. Yeah. Um, her divination and synchronicity essay just blew uh, the top off my head. It's so good. And uh, so her good. mind, I mean, she is just, she's tremendous. She was tremendous. Um, but you know, uh, the, the idea of going back to the child state of mind, Dom used to really be into this Zen, um, this Zen monk, uh, was it Basho? I think, mm-hmm. um, but you know, he always talked about entering into the child, the, the, you know, like a childlike state or a child mind. Jesus says in the gospel of Thomas that you have to become like, like children and, you know, the, trample their cho- clothes and become like children and and I think becoming like that child, you know, like that divine child, like Fanes or, mm-hmm. um, you know, Haru, th- there's something there. There absolutely is. And I think there's something else in there that I'd like to kind of tease out, which is the role of randomness of stochastics in Sortilage. You know, the idea, stochastics just meaning, you know, um, randomness, but it comes from the root of uh, stochon, which is... Oh, it has to do with arrangements of things and marching and walking and guessing. So, um, so yeah, and I think that there's something that Marie-Louise von Franz said about the necessity of chaos in divination, right? So when we're talking about oracular methods that use as their basis the idea that you cannot know what the outcome is going to be because it's random, that makes me think a little bit of a couple of different things. It makes me think of, for example, the idea, uh, the, the, the mythological idea of necessity and time, Ananke and Kronos being the, the parents of chaos, of chaos, you know. So the idea that, which always sounds to me like a, a restatement of Newton's second law of thermodynamics um, about entropy, <laughs> necessity and time producing chaos. But regardless of that, I, what, I, what I would think is that, you know, chaos is, is like, uh, like, the, like the Tao. It's the nothingness upon which something or everything depends. So if you can imagine, you know, looking at the night sky and you see a field of stars, when we impose the constellations upon that field of of stars, we are imposing, we are, we are creating meaning, but it's, we are not actually the creators. The meaning co-arises between us and that field of chaos. And I think that that's essential. Um, I think that uh, what, what divination provides for us is, um, here's a Patrick Dunn quote, it provides a whatever it is we're looking at, the substrate, a superabundance of information which cannot be decoded back into meaningfulness by the conscious mind. So, you know, that chaos is a way of shutting down 
that conscious mind and allowing it to get out of the way so we can return to that sort of tabula rasa fool childlike mentality and there's a there's a there's a uh, there's a parallel to this in language as well this is a another <laughs> idea of patrick dunn's which i picked up like a magpie but the idea that you know metaphor is also a way that we get at the same kind of state of mind linguistically there's an idea that you know there's there's metaphors that are obvious and then there are metaphors that are not like you know if i say love is a battlefield that's a that's a really cliched metaphor if i say the heart <laughs> is a lonely hunter that's a you know slightly less cliched metaphor but there's a whole there's a whole category of metaphors known as paralogical metaphors. So the example Patrick gives is the book is the buffalo of the library. What even does that mean? Or if I say the moon is a river of howling pearls, what even does that mean? So there's something about the ability to take language and produce a field of chaos out of it that is magical, that resets the semiotic web so that we can do ritual and magic and produce something new. Uh, there's a, there's a, um, a passage I'm not going to look up right now and uh, about the, um, the bard Taliesin where he's, you know, he transforms himself into a sem and he transforms himself into all these various creatures. And to me, that is, I get chills down my spine when I read that because that's just like a, 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 a a paragraph of paralogical metaphor resetting the stage so that reality can be reformed. Oh yeah. I'm a stag of seven tines and so on. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, you yeah. know who Rimbaud was a wunderkund for that. Right. Right. Was, uh, oh my God. Like I, it's crazy. <laughs> I started reading Rimbaud at maybe 16 years old and I still can't get mm -hmm. enough of him. Yeah. Um, same. He yeah. just, he was such a magician with his words, but I want to go back to um, your point about chaos for a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an Egyptian theological concept. It's a fundamental Egyptian theological concept of the Zeptepi, the first mm. thing. And, um, uh, you know, the Zeptepi is the, is the Egyptian genesis. Um, and, you mm -hmm. know, everything arises out of the noon, which is a preformative uh, chaos. And I think it might be helpful for people to step out of the, uh, the sort of postmodern Western idea of chaos as disorder mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. go get to the more archaic idea of chaos as a pregnant potentiality, like a mula, like the mula prakriti of, um, of Indian metaphysics, of Samkhya, Shankya metaphysics. The, the idea that there is this um, endless potentiality, which is in the Egyptian tradition um, uh, described as a cosmic ocean, black cosmic ocean. And from this, you know, the first day, the, the beginning of all creation occurs. And every time we enter into the divinatory or magical process, it is the Zeptepi. It is the first mm. day. We are conjuring the, the universe anew out of chaos. Yes, precisely. I, I think that's perfect. There's a, there's a model of reality uh, that, that, that von Franz uses where there's, you know, sort of two intersecting wheels. There's the 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 wheel of eternal and a causal order and then there's the wheel that we live on of linear linear time and where they intersect that's the oracular moment the breathing hole the spiraculum eternitatis and that's where we have a chance to um to access that chaos and it's funny because 
in the chaos we're talking about, there is this implicit order, which, you know, we, we could get start going into quantum physics and Bohm and all this mm -hmm. with implicit order, you know, and all, all of that. But, um, you know, it also makes me think of, again, uh, two two, the same idea in parallel traditions of the Egyptian Ma'at and the uh, um, Indian Arta, which is, Rita, which is, you know, um, which is that same, that, that uh, harmonious, you could translate it order, justice, um, cyclical time, you know, pa you know, harmonious mm -hmm. patterns, the harmonious pattern of everything. But that includes chaos. That includes that includes because it's right. like you look at a right. fractal or if you look at chaos mathematics and quantum physics, well, right. what we what appears to us is chaos. Um, if we're able to zoom out enough, we begin to see the implicit order that it, that it is a part of. That's right. It's thoroughly enmeshed. And the thing is that when you, you know, I think from sort of a normal mundane materialistic worldview, we think of things as very linear as being, I kind of use the example of a marble run going from, you know, point A to point B, this lever causes this shoot to drop, this spring causes this action to happen, this bounce, etc. But uh, the 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 a causal view looks at the world as if you can imagine like an entire field of intersecting gears <laughs> you know every one thing that moves moves everything else you cannot say which is the cause because everything co-arises and therefore it does not matter where you shine your light in that whole arrangement you will find something true as a diviner as a seer with so much experience and so much practice walking through through life um do you just see meaning everywhere because you know there are symbols everywhere how does how do you approach that your mundane life because as you've been very beautifully explaining both of you um this kind of interpenetration that we're able to experience when we divine and and kind of look deeper into the workings of the anima mundi mm -hmm. how does this affect your your daily life that's a really fantastic question. I mean, I think, you know, I I like to set my day in a way. I do this I do this with ritual. I do this with uh drawing a couple of cards and then kind of working with the cards and doing a two-line spell that sort of informs my entire day. But a lot of it is kind of just there in the background. Like, for example, okay, I'll give you a mus another musical example. Um I have what's known as absolute pitch. So I generally know, or at least it seems to be getting a bit warped with age, which is disturbing, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but, uh, but, you know, I generally know what note I'm hearing. And, uh, and people used to ask me who were not musicians, does that distract you all the time? You know, are you always thinking about what note that is? And no, no, it's sort of, it's there if you need it. It's there, it's just knowing, but it's there if you want to know. And uh, and that's how I feel about meaning in a sense. It's sort of there if you are paying attention and not there if you're not. So I think that, um, I think that it's possible to get, there is, there is, in addition to the affliction of meaninglessness, there is <laughs> an affliction of, over meaningfulness where, you know, people can get a little bit paranoid and mm -hmm. conspiratorial. And I, I think it's good to maintain the, the sacred nature of what we do by keeping it separate, right? So there's times when you're on and times when you're off, but you can have faith that it's always available to you when you need it. Well, and I had a friend when I was, he was, I was 16 when I met 
And we, we, my friend Joel, um, we used to, it was, it was during, well, it's my whole life has been a magical period, but, um, it was during a, you know, it was during an earlier magical period in my life when a lot of synchronicities and things were happening. But I remember him saying some really choice things to me at the time. And one of the things he said was, you know, once you get into magic, once you start practicing magic, once you go on the path of magical, just magic, magical practice, magical life, he's like, there's no turning back. He's like, there's no, he's like, what? He's like, you can even try to, you can, you know, whatever you want to do. He was like, it's just not going to happen. Once you're on the path, it starts to move on its own. And you just have Mm -hmm. to accept that you're on it um, forever. And it's just going to keep working. And I found that to be true. I found several things he said at the time to be true. One thing, another thing, which I don't want to go into, but he also brought up a point, which I think is debatable, but a very interesting conversation in itself was that um, he said, uh, you know, when you're a magician, it's very difficult to be involved with someone who isn't a magician and it's never going to work out. Now, I don't know that I agree with that, but um, I think I think a whole conversation could be had over like if you're a magician or a practitioner of um, magic in any form, you know, what the implications of being with another magician are, because that can be a really that can be a whole can of worms or being with somebody who's totally a ma- not magical at all, not interested, but supportive or whatever, um, or not supportive, you know, th- th- that's an interesting conversation that should be shelved for another time, I think. But to get back to what he said originally, so it's like that with divination too, I think, where, where once you're divining, you can maybe turn the volume down, mm. but it's you can never turn it off completely. But the difference between a diviner and schizophrenic, I think, <laughs> the ability to modulate to uh, to have the that meaningful um semiotic skill where you are able to you know when necessary turn it up look around see what you see and also sometimes a symbol will re- literally like you may be totally in a mundane okay i have to go like pick up the kids i have to pay this bill or yes. you know whatever i need to go to the doctor and then all of a sudden it's a symbol like flings itself at you <laughs> right at your feet. Like you can't ignore it. You were trying to get normal stuff done and now you have to go into magic mode. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. For me, it's a physical feeling. I don't know if it is for everybody else, but it's sort of like there's a, there's an on switch and an off switch, you know? And, and the thing is that like you have to, I, I think there's something to be said for just really knowing what that feels like for you. I mean, for anybody who's doing this work and not being, overly precious about it. I mean, I remember when I was first, you know, doing learning the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, I'd be <laughs> sweating away trying to remember my archangel names and which direction they were in. And then, you know, some kid wanders in saying, I missed the bus. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, what are you going to do? And I know you guys can relate to this as parents, you know, having a magical life alongside your mundane life creates you know, um, I, I think in the best case creates an ability to, to, to code switch right between the two of them. Well, yeah, because you're doing an invocation, then all of a sudden, dad, (sighs) I know. And I'm so glad you guys understand this because, you know, there are lots of magicians who don't have kids and, and I often think, well, you know, that's, that's great, but could you do this with a four-year-old? <laughs> well, you know, on one hand, it could be a good thing. Like you guys were talking about controlling the the volume, the noise ratio. You know, if I didn't have kids constantly 
pulling me in different directions. Um, I might kind of be a little bit more unbalanced with between my mundane and more spiritual, uh, magical kind of right. worldview and practices. It kind of keeps me grounded a little bit, a little bit too much sometimes, but um, I think that balance is actually a good thing. Well, we've all met we've all met those people who are into super into magic but can't even fucking hold down their an apartment. You know what I well, mean? Well, sure. Yeah. And it also forces you to have the courage of your convictions because you can bet that nobody around you is going to be, you know, on board with what you're doing in exactly the way you're doing it. Right. So, you know. Well, when my when my 20-year-old was a baby, for obvious reasons that, you know, I had to I had to be be with him a lot. And I, I was really deep in my meditation practice at that time. But there were times where I was different places where the external environment was not supportive of meditation. You know, like you'd hear like, rrr, 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 like some dump truck or some fucking thing yeah. like that, some person screaming, whatever. But I taught myself to make those things part of the meditation. Yes. You have to. So, so instead of letting the, 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 you know, the guy with the weed whacker at like 630 in the morning right outside of your window bother you, you, t- you invert that and make that something that brings you deeper into the trance, deeper into the meditation, deeper into the magical right. So for me, uh, I don't believe in interruptions anymore. I believe in opportunities for practice. I believe that these things are actually opportunities to go deeper into what we're doing and we can use them as instruments to draw us more into that moment. Yeah. That's a great attitude. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> yeah. What is that? Uh, what is that saying about meditation that, you know, I'm sure you can tell me the source cause I've, I've, it's been driving me crazy. I can't remember what it is, but you know, on a normal, under normal circumstances, one hour is plenty when things are really busy and you're super distracted, no less than three will do. <laughs> well this this um conversation is leading me to a question so being that you could read the world around you the world is just one big mirror are are all decks equal i mean is the my little pony deck equally (laughs) as valid as the rider weight deck well here's the thing you know i kind of yes but i think that one thing that readers sometimes get hung up on is the idea that you cannot do something with this deck that you can do with that deck. And I get a little bit antsy about that because I don't see how you separate the diviner from their instruments, right? You know, you never can take out everything you know about the seven of pentacles just because you're looking at a seven of pentacles that you don't normally look at. Mm -hmm. Right. So I I think there's something to be said for not being overly prescriptive when it comes to uh, when it comes to doing that. Now there's also there's also several different layers to a reading, right? Uh, and this is something that is I like to talk about as kind of an analogy you can use as lectio divina or uh, or pardes, you know, peshat remes deresh sod, that you have the sort of literal level and then you have the sort of uh, illusion level or the figurative level, level. You have the sort of homiletic metal level and you have the sort of secret level. And, you know, and I think that at some point, it's always possible. I mean, you should never forget the literal level. We tend to go deep and high with with readings, but never forget that whatever you're looking at is going to have some kind of image 
you know, that, that matters. It matters that this particular seven of pentacles has a guy with a rake, but this one doesn't, this one has like a squirrel, you know, or like a bunch of nuts on it. You know, it's like, it matters because there was a reason you chose that deck. There was a reason the client was attracted to it. What the client sees in it is also important. So I try never to get too far away no matter what else I'm doing in the reading, from that layer of being just very simple and literal and seeing what's on the card. So to that extent, yeah, you could use My Little Pony because <laughs> what you see or what, you know, or what the client sees in that might be relevant. You cannot ever rule it out. Well, being that I first saw the My Little Pony deck, because um, Janice uses that quite exclusively. <laughs> Janice, Janice, what do you think about this? <laughs> I definitely see Susie's point and I understand, you know, that her point kind of dovetails with our um, sort of meta conversation we've been having here mm -hmm. about um, the point that divination is implicit in the fabric of reality. And yes. so technically you could use your kitchen knives for divination if you understand how to cast bones or other random objects, you know what I mean? So yes, can, sticks and stones. Right. So there's a difference. I think there's, I think there's a, um, a qualitative difference though between being able to use anything as a interpretive instrument and calling anything tarot. And I think right now we are inundated with, um, with really a myriad, myriads of plethora of uh, what, in my opinion, are essentially uh, from the perspective that of the tradition of the tarot. Uh, illegitimate decks mm. that that do not draw upon or build upon tarot tradition. I mean, it, it is it is a tradition. It does have a sort of genetic uh, descent into different branches, um, you know. And and we see these decks created by people who may be talented artists, but we also see decks being created by people who just want to make a little bit of scratch. And and as somebody who's devoted literally most of the majority of their life to this, I I definitely have some trouble with those mm -hmm. decks. At the same time, though, I think of this period kind of like the um, the late sixties, late sixties, early seventies. There was a there was an explosion of interest in the occult, witchcraft, magic during that time, and there was a lot of pop manifestations of these things. And I mean, let's face it most people are going to remain superficial in their interest and, and the cream rises to the top. So you're going to have superficial decks and superficial people are going to use those decks. And uh, as far as the deeper, the deeper material, well, only the people who are comfortable, you know, swimming in deeper waters are going to be interested in and able to access those things. One thing I found is that when it comes to secrets, they're often hidden in plain sight, right in front of your face. Yes, yes. Well, here's where I can meet you halfway on that. I mean, I think that one thing I'm constantly on my hobby horse about when it comes to tarot is that literally everything in the world is in there. Every damn thing from tying your shoes to falling in love. And those, if you're trying to read a deck with a very limited set of meanings, so you say, you know, the... Um, the three of swords can mean this and only this. You're always going to be limited. So I try to teach people to practice seeing the world in tarot language and translating it back so that every literal last thing that they you know experience goes back into the deck. And what I think what I think what happens sometimes with what you might call, you know, lighthearted 
decks or fun decks or, you know, theme decks or novelty decks is that that can limit your perspective. You know, if it causes you to see the world as just a subset of what it really is, that's not helpful, right? So to me, you know, if you as the reader can bring everything you've got, your whole world, your whole worldview, your whole, you know, cosmological background to every reading and every deck, that's one thing. But if you look at the deck and suddenly you feel like you're dealing with one-tenth of your normal mind, then that's definitely a problem. Uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but, um, but you know, just to bring it back to prediction and what we believe about cards versus what reality you run up against when you're using them. You know, I have this practice where I spreadsheet and track everything, which the astrologers would say has to do with, <laughs> uh, with the overabundance of Virgo in my chart. But, um, but the thing is that what I do that I do that to stay truthful, right? So that whatever I draw, I need to see how it turned out, because I don't want it all to be theory for me, right? Mm -hmm. I want to know how this stuff has traction in real life so that I can bring that back to the people I read for and tell them, look, you got the three of swords. Here's five ways it might shake out, you know, and part of the oracular process is having an instinct for which one is the right one. But, um, but one of the things I discovered over the course of doing 36 secrets is that, you know, every chapter in here has a has a section where I talk about how it showed up for me. What I'm, one of the things I found is that the cards will teach you what they mean. You know, they will tell you if you are not sure. And that's why I tell everybody to have a card of the day practice because you get freebies. You know, they tell you what, uh, how they're going to show up and what they might mean in ways that you do not expect. You know, for example, that three of swords I was just talking about, most people read that as, you know, heartbreak or sorrow or trouble. Um, but it was once a card of contracts and marriage. And, you know, over the years, I have seen that card come up for me, you know, every time, well, not every time, but many times when I'm literally signing a book contract or doing something like that. So I think there's something to be said for opening yourself up to the way the world is going to express itself to you through the cards, as well as the way you superimpose the world onto your cards. Well, there, that's, that relates back to Joe Lisiewski's um, sub idea of the subjective synthesis that every magician has to eventually develop, where you know you practice an art, and you, you should at least begin in a traditional way so you understand. It's sort of like if you're an artist, like you're a classically trained musician, you understand this. Mm -hmm. um, you obviously are also a natural musician, you know, you're, you know, with that pitch thing you have, I mean, that's incredible, but <laughs> you know, your classical training enabled you to reach even, you know, reach even further, uh, attain greater heights with your natural gifts. Uh, tell my teacher that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, but, but there's a subjective synthesis where then we start in the process of meaning building with the mind we begin to develop our own um, subjective lexicon of personal meanings for cards, symbols, yes. things like that. For me, those meanings are more like growths out of or inner dimensions of the set meanings. For instance, if we look at like an Omicron, 
You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. In the in the Pythagorean letter mysticism, because you know you were talking about Kabbalah and really a lot of you know, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, the you're gonna have to cut out like four you knows there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I hate that so much, but yeah, no problem. I'll say it a few more times. Um, anyway, though, with with Kabbalah, we have Tamura, we have Natarakan. Um, and all of these, all of these techniques really originate in uh, Pythagorean uh, letter mystic, letter and meter, letter and number mysticism. The, that preceded it and became integrated into the Hebrew mysticism in Alexandria with the translation of the Septuagint. Um, what I'm, but what I'm getting at here is the reason that was possible is because both languages. You have letters that are both letters and numbers. And in addition to that, those letters also have uh, names, which probably goes back to hieroglyphic script of the Egyptians. Um, so there's a polyvalency to each letter. You know, you have an ox goad. What is that? You know, what is an ox goad? But there's many dimensions to that symbol itself. Then there's dimensions that come off of the phonetic aspect the sound of the letter has several dimensions then you have the number of the letter and the number itself has several dimensions and then when you combine all several numbers which are also letters together to form a word that word can have several associations and dimensions so i think that even the the importance of learning the set original the sort of the the core meaning leads us to this sort of pluriform multivalency where we're able to access an entire spectrum of meaning and nuance. Well, yes, there's that idea that there's a genetic code that if you can learn it, you know, the idea that the alphabet in whatever tradition you're talking about is the basis for the unfolding of creation, right? It's all held in there. And I think that that is, um, that's that's certainly a very attractive idea, the idea that you can begin with the basics and then proceed from there. But also it ties into the idea that language itself is something special, you know, and I know we're saying that as three devotees of Hermes, so maybe that's a little <laughs> uh, predictable. But, um, but, you know, I mean, there really is something special about language and the way that it forms reality, even as, as we're speaking. And I think that that's, core both in divination and magic um well that's logos didn't philip k dick say i think it was philip k dick said language is a virus and it's funny because when you get into logos i think there you're starting to really get into the you know you're getting into the bones of divination itself because the logos people think you know word just means you know the word or the creator but really logos is this sort of um implicit entelechy the the underlying pattern of everything and it's not yes. only static, but it's dynamic. It's the warp and woof, which in the northern tradition is the web of weird. You know, you have you have the vertical strands and the horizontal strands. You have time and space, and the intersecting nodes of Indra's net. You know, each one of these little jeweled nodes is a point of consciousness. And I tend to see every system of divination is also a linguistic system and each one of the letters of that system, which is also a symbol as a point of consciousness. So I want to ask you, um, cause you know, we have your book on the Deccans here, which is wonderful. I love your, I love the, um, 
anecdotal component to your writing. It really draws you in and makes you feel like you're right there with you. Like I feel like when I'm reading, when I'm reading your your writing, I feel like I'm sitting right next to you or participating with you in oh, your day. Um, and it just it feels it almost it almost bridges that line between fiction and nonfiction because or 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 you know there's this narrative element to it that draws you in and so it all almost creates a mythic dimension which i really appreciate and you know you wrote an entire book about the deccans and your experience with it and the deccans are were understood originally to be actual spirits um and that lends to the point of well are the cards spirits yes uh, I think that's a really wonderful way of looking at them. And uh, I think that there's something to be said for viewing them as spirits in the same way that there's something to be spe- said for finding the anima in anything, right? You know, when when you go for a walk in the woods, you're far more likely to get something out of it if you start from the assumption that it's alive, right? So, you know, so I think there's something to be said for for looking for the aliveness in the cards to the extent that that allows you to engage with them as if they're persons and can have a conversation with you. Because I think it is about conversation. I think that, you know, one of the things I tell people I use the model of language a great deal in in tarot because I believe that once you learn this language of tarot, once you can interpret the symbols and have a sort of vocabulary that you can use, what is language for? You can have conversations, you can have arguments, you can talk back, which is magic, (laughs) right? You know, you can do this work um, once you know how to speak the language. So, so yes. So I think in general. Perhaps language is a function of spirit in that way. And building on this idea of conversation and interaction, I want to touch on this tiny subject of fate um, and how that <laughs> <laughs> and how and how um, that fits into all this. Um, because I, I think there could be a trap for diviners or people who are hobbyists or who play around with divination that um, they could become trapped in fate. And I, my Mm -hmm. opinion is that um, the role of the magician or uh, someone who is enlightened perhaps is to kind of break out of that um, maybe cycle of fate or allows them flexibility in order to maneuver within that structure rather than being confined by it. What do you, what do you guys think? Oh yeah, totally. Um, I I I think about this a lot. Uh, I wrote a whole. There's a whole thing in tarot correspondences in the introduction about divination versus magic. Um, I mean, I I really do think that this these questions of you know I used to ask everyone I went on. <laughs> this would drive interviewers crazy. I would ask everyone what where they were on the scale of one to ten, fate versus free will. <laughs> Nice. (laughs) And Gordon White got really peeved at me for that and had like a 10 minute discussion of what fate versus free will even means. So, um, (laughs) I mean, diviners, yeah, diviners tend to tend to be um, often to be very much on the side of 
fate and magicians very much on the side of free will, or if you want to say determinism versus agency, if that's a little makes people feel a little less allergic. But um, I mean, I, I, I tend to think that I, I don't think that everything is fated and I don't think it, everything is negotiable. I really don't. I think at least from our perspective. Uh, so what I, I tend to say, and this is probably even more infuriating is that I think it's constructive to use your illusion of free will to deal with your illusion of fate, if that makes sense. You know, um, the idea that, that there is some, some uh, modicum of agency may be an illusion, but so is the, uh, the idea that you have no choice in the matter. So, you know, I think you can work with those two um, to uh, intention to achieve what you desire. And there's also the fact that, you know, one of the tenets of divination that I really subscribe to is that divination doesn't give you the specific thing, except for when it does, it gives you the quality of the moment, right? So the quality of the moment by is uh, that flex, that oracular drift, that archetypal flex that, that says that, you know, the tower could mean something absolutely terrible happening like a car crash or it could mean you dropped your glass of milk on the floor right you know it could mean any number of mm -hmm. different things so so I, I i really believe that um one of the things i do magically with with my divination tools is i argue back and say look i would much prefer that that um we manifest in this way rather than that. So, you know, I, I actually do quite a bit of sympathetic magic with my cards in that way, just to fulfill the archetypal need of that spirit to express itself while not completely fucking up my life. <laughs> Interesting. Well, that, and that, and that's, that actually, you, you said a few things that I would have said actually that I was going to answer. I'm on the same page with you about that. See, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the point that divination is more typically historically and in the rest of the world associated with um, spiritual traditions and religious traditions, magical traditions that are established and usually practiced by a priest of some kind, often a specialized priest. Like in Egypt, there were actually specific diviner priests um, and you still have that in Africa and so on and so forth. But it's a diagnostic tool. Right. So, you know, if you were taught magic correctly or if you were fortunate enough to pick things up, you know, on your own correctly or from the spirits, you should have learned. And I don't mean you specifically. I mean, anybody. You should have learned that before you do any act of magic, you're supposed to divine beforehand to see, number one, if it's going to be effective. Number two, if there could be deleterious effects from it. Or number three, if you're just going to be wasting your time and nothing will happen. And, and the divination enables you to see the potentials of any action. And then if it's less than desirable, you can then use the divination to um, analyze and, pres and, and, pre and prescribe remedial actions. Um, the divination can actually enable you to see how to change things so that the, the time stream aligns more with uh, – the 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 outcome you would prefer to see you can turn divination like you said active into a form of sympathetic magic i mean even if we look at the point that 
these cards, like think of the White Smith deck, right? I mean, how many people are using that deck at any given moment, right? Like on every day, any day, any day that we pass through right now, there are thousands of people using that deck every minute of the day because of how widespread it is. There's so many bootlegs. There's so many, it's been translated into so many languages. The images are ubiquitous. They're now public domain. So think of the amount of focused psychic energy being poured into every image of that deck at every moment of the day. That would animate it. It's, it's animated naturally by that psychic energy. And so, yes, you can use the tarot as a, an active magical instrument to influence fate. And I love that you brought that up because that's something that I was that's somewhere I was going to go. And I also want to touch on, you know, a lot of what you're saying, a lot of the things that you're mentioning really originate in an animist worldview, an animistic attitude. And that is a primordial, I believe, really very human, original human attitude is this animism. And 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 that's and it goes hand in hand with panpsychism, you know, the idea that all is mind. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think basically what we can do with cards is very similar to, you know, what we can do with dreams in a sense, you know, you know, the practice, um, I think it's a, it's a practice, an Aboriginal practice in New Zealand where you come back from the dream and then you, you turn that dream into reality by making a song, you know, or a piece of uh, created work. And I often will end a reading with people by saying, look, you know, you got this card, you got the seven of wands. Okay. I told you what I thought it means, but what I'd like you to do is print it out on a piece of paper, carry it around in your wallet, write a spell on it. What is it you want it to do? Because it's a way of reclaiming that language and saying, this is mine. That's yeah. That's, that reminds me of a a funny story. I don't even know where I heard it. It might've been a Babylonian uh, king, but during this divination, the diviner said that this king was going to die. And <laughs> so they're like, okay, well, I'm going to step down as king. Here's this other guy. He's now the king. We kill him. Okay, he died. The king died. And now I'm back and we're all good. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, just that interaction with fate and with um, the world around you, with the cards, like you guys are saying, uh, makes a lot of sense. Yes, yes. I mean, there, there's definitely something to be said for just entering into conversation with fate. That is, that is what I'm in it for. I don't know about everybody else. Although it does mean that I uh, periodically, on days I get the tower, end up crawling down the stairs head first, chewing pepper. And I, I really don't recommend people do that. <laughs> so in Japan, there's this idea, you know, there's these spirits, yokai, which... Yes. There's all kind, you know. There's all kinds of yokai. They're really cool. There's also some great yokai movies, but I'm not even going to go there right now. Yes, I make a yokai face mask with the yokai Amabie on it, who is that plague warden spirit thing. That's so awesome! Oh, <laughs> I've cool. got to see that. I, I want to see that. Um, so the idea, though, is like if you have, you know, if a house has a broom for like a hundred years and it's passed down for a couple generations, that broom eventually is going to acquire a certain kind of sentience and become alive. I have found as I I grew up going to flea markets, antique stores, yard sales. And when I was small, you you would still come across some pretty remarkable antiques. Um, So I developed a real love of that as a kid, you know, running my hands over very old things, holding something a couple of hundred years old in my hands. And I came 
by the time I was an adult, I started to develop this awareness that older things do have a kind of spirit. We've all we've all been to old locations, old old places where the the spirit of place is much stronger. And I think that that idea that something comes alive after being present in this dimension for enough time, I, I think that applies to the cards too. I, I think that's mm-hmm. something that we can say with the tarot. To me, it's almost an organism. It's So when I refer to it as a family tree or when I refer to the cards as spirits, I'm not just using a metaphor, but I am saying, I think this is almost like at this point on a psychic level, in a way, a living organism yes maybe made of information yes did you did, did you guys read uh the his dark materials trilogy philip pullman's no oh okay so no. there's this idea well it's a it's a very interesting series but uh there's a there's an idea he has in there of the concept of dust with a capital d which is sort of the accumulated the accumulated experience knowledge memories feelings intentions you know the information that goes into objects as well as into human beings. And that, you know, there's this idea that dust starts to accumulate around puberty, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I think, you know, my feeling is that cards are thick with dust, <laughs> you know, in the same way that the antiques you're talking about are. Yeah, the, the, there is, there really is that dimension to it. Oh, also another thing I wanted to mention was, you know, you're talking about conversation and it brings up another hermetic characteristic that of negotiation because when i hear you saying conversation when i hear you talking about conversation what i hear you describing sometimes is negotiation yes like like the kind of negotiation a lawyer or a diplomat or an interpreter does or a translator and i think that's all important because all of those hermetic dimensions are dimensions of the same idea translation negotiation interpretation communication, you know, all different sides. And these are all part of the divinatory art. Bargaining as well. You know, I mean, yeah, there's that, that, that epithet, ker dembore, which means like the, the, gov- the person who governs the markets, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So there is this book called 38, <laughs> 36 Secrets. Um, and I'm going to echo what Janet said earlier about your writing style. It's really enjoyable to oh, read. Thank you so um, much. You have a very kind of poetic flair about you just generally in all your writing that I really enjoy um, in your portrayal of how you walk through life. Um, just viewing these symbols and integrating them into your your practice. I, I love it. And this book is a perfect example of everything we've been talking about today, actually, of this communication, this integration. And the Deccan Walk seems like a great way for someone to enter into this conversation uh, with the cards, with the Anima Mundi, with the stars, so can you maybe break down what the Deccan journey is? Yes, yes. So um, I think, you know, the as I understood it when I first heard of it from Austin and Austin Kopic and Gordon White, you know, it was a way of walking through the entire year, 10 days at a time, Deccan by Deccan, and ritualizing it in a sense, which I thought sounded great. But, and here is my sort of magical imposter syndrome popping up again. Uh, you know, I, I did not actually sit down and, you know, on Aries one and get myself a bunch of iron and, um, and red stuff and, uh, and do an, 
invocation of Aries or anything like that. Mm-hmm. All I did was I thought about it and wrote about it <laughs> over the course of 10 days. And, you know, to me, that is that was incredibly meaningful. I would encourage anyone, whether or not you do the ritual piece of it, and I think it's great if you do, to come out of each 10 days of your Deccan walk with something you made, something you created, something that's unique to you. Because I think that, oh, you know, art is the perfume of mortality. <laughs> mm. And uh, and I think that, you know, as as practitioners, it's what we get. That's the reward. That's the way we build meaning into our lives. So to me, that's the... Um, I've seen a lot of people picking up 36 secrets to do their own Deccan walks. And that makes me incredibly happy. There are people who are like hacking the book and making notes in it and, and putting artistic things into it and putting more charts into it, which is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And and that, that really um, to see people making it their own is wonderful for me. Cause I, you know, I wrote, I wrote in the introduction that it's, it's essentially a set of tools. I said, this book is my compass, my knife, and my camp stove. And I invite you to make use of it in any way you see fit. And I really mean that. I really mean that because for me, it's just navigational work, this book. And if anybody can use it to find their way on their own journey, then that makes me happy. So can we step back a minute and can you explain what a Deccan is and and how this all (laughs) works? Right. Yeah. So uh, Deccan is, so we all know the 12 zodiacal signs, which we should think of as being disposed around a 360 degree circle, dividing it into 12 sections of the sky or 12 sections of time. Here, space and time converge. And a Deccan is merely a one third of each sign, 10 degrees of that 360 degree arc, um, and, or 10 degrees of the sky, if you want to think about it that way, 10 de- or 10, roughly 10 days of the year. There are going to be a few decans that are going to be 11 because of, we have a 365 day year. But, um, but the thing about, uh, the thing about Deccans is therefore that with each sign you have three of them. So we're in Taurus right now, Taurus one, Taurus two, and Taurus three. And the correlation to the cards is as follows. The are um, the golden dawn assigned the 36 Deccans to the 36 numeric minors of the tarot. So that would be the two through 10 of the four suits. And it's pretty easy to remember in the sense that you know, if you know, if you assign elements to the four suits, wands are fire, uh, cups are water, swords are air, pentacles are earth. There's some dispute over swords and uh, and wands, as always. Go figure. But um, air and fire. But if you follow the Golden Dawn system, which, of course, is the genetic code for the entire English school of tarot that that we most modern decks that are not Marseille decks are based on, then it's fair enough to say that those elemental uh, correspondences hold. So therefore, you know, you take your two through 10 minors of tarot and the two, three, and four will be the cardinal signs. The five, six, and seven will be the fixed signs and the eight, nine, and 10 will be the mutable signs. And then each of those will be 
governed, each Deccan will be governed by one of the seven traditional planets. They go in order. Took me years to understand this, and, uh, which is ridiculous because you can just look at a chart. This is why I make books with charts. So, um, but anyway, so that's the way it works. It's uh, basically, you know, you start with Aries one, you end with Pisces three, and you go through 36 Deccans, 10 days at a time. Awesome. So it, it seems like you've thought about this. So can you... <laughs> Can you uh, give us an example for the Deccan we're in right now? Yes. So, for example, oh, we're in my favorite Deccan to talk about, in fact. Perfect. Oh, no. Um, so this is the this is the uh, Taurus one, which is the Five of Pentacles. And the Five of Pentacles is, as a matter of fact, one of the mercurial Deccans. There are five of those. In fact, because seven times five equals 35, every planet um, gets five shots at, at a Deccan, except for Mars, which gets two. So there's six Marshall Deccans. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. The uh, Five of Pentacles is uh, a mercurial Deccan in the Chaldean system. There's there's other systems as well, but this is the one that that applies for what we're talking about. And uh, and I absolutely love this Deccan because it's the, the imagery for it is so gnarly. This is the Five of Pentacles, right? Where we have the church with the people who are lame and crippled outside of the church mm-hmm. in the snow, having a really, really hard time. And um, I, I, I love this Deccan because over the years, it has taught me um, that there's a lot more going on than simply having a really bad day. You know, sometimes you look at this and it's sort of like that children's story, Alexander's horrible, terrible, you know, awful, very bad day. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, it's not just that, right? It's not just that. And that's the thing about tarot, learning to see the layers behind um, everything else that's going on. First of all, if you, uh, and this is the one of the things I talk about in the um, chapter, if you think about Mercury and you think about Taurus, those have correspondences within the major arcana. So we're talking about Mercury is the magician, as you both very well know, and Taurus is represented by the Hierophant. So you have the magician and the Hierophant, and you have these two very different energies going on. The magician, of course, is Mercury, the thief, the lockpicker, the Hierophant is the keeper of the keys. So you put those two together and you're going to get some very interesting dynamics going on where somebody's trying to break into the house and somebody's trying to keep them out. <laughs> right. So um, not naming names. but <laughs> So those two together, you know, really produce this fascinating interplay of you know, this negotiation between outside and inside, between um, curators and thieves, between, you know, apostolic knowledge and the desire to seize knowledge for yourself. You know, there's all sorts of things that's going on in there. And so the the, the sort of um, overall theme I came up with to describe it is sacred doubt. It's this idea that you can't know everything. And yet there's a, um, that the negotiation that you undertake with the belief structure is in some way fundamental. So, you know, so I have had this card for all manner of things, um, for being locked out of places, for sure. Um, for things breaking down, 
for my 20-year-old son leaving the car with no gas in it, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, but also for, you know, the Deccan commentators talked about this as a Deccan of geometry, of plowing and sowing, of germinating seeds, something like that. I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember the exact phrasing and from Picatrix. But, you know, and that is a mercurial function, to look ahead and to worry about what might be coming and to do your best to anticipate and plan for it. So, um, so to me, that's, that's part of it. There's the hermetic title, which is the Lord of Worry, but it also, um, it also brings in this idea that we worry about the things that we love, that we care about. And this is the double meaning of care, right? Because if we have cares, well, we have problems. But if we care about something, we love it. So to love things <laughs> is to have problems. <laughs> it's just fundamental to, to being human. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, so that's something I've really learned to work with. I also think that this card has something to do with ritual magic, because you take the magician and the hierophant, you, you think about all of the preparations and the technical obsessiveness that goes into producing a ritual, you know, that's part of this card as well. And, um, and sympathetic magic, uh, in terms of sympathetic magic with this, with this card, I have worked with it successfully in the past to, um, to, to kind of express its energy in ways that I choose. So, for example, the 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 main um, iteration of this that I usually give is when uh, I drew this card a couple years ago, probably a year and a half ago, and I was concerned because the lock on our front door was broken. It's uh, not a door that anybody uses, but obviously you don't want to have a slide bolt that's broken on your door. And you know, I didn't want to bother my husband about fixing it because he was at work, and um, and it had been just sort of I'd been holding it closed with like a box <laughs> for a long time. So I finally, having gotten the five of pentacles, I went and I got his tools and I fixed the lock that day. And to me, that was very much in the nature of this card, you know, to talk about, well, worry, worrying constructively, thinking ahead, um, anticipating what might go wrong, but also working with the lock and the key and, you know, leaving them in a state that was amenable to my own purposes. Well said. Yeah, that's okay. really, really intriguing. And it brought to mind a few things for me. Number one, the idea of need, right? So, you know, need is fundamental to magical practice, really, and spiritual practice as well. And I don't think there's, a, there's anything wrong with this, right? Like, most people pray when they need something. And I, I've seen people be critical of this, but the gods understand that mankind is in an environment that is not always favorable to them. And they established the science of prayer to ameliorate these, these um, misfortunes. So I think that, that need often takes the form of something that is requisite for completeness. And I think if you look at the pictorial narrative uh, in the Wade Smith deck uh, of the coins or pentacles, the next card is actually a card of charity. Like these people then in the next card and the six of coins are receiving what they need. And so in a way, this card is a prefiguration of something positive. I, I've had this card come up when I was searching for some place to stay in a city when like, um, 
when the initial place to stay had fallen through, you know, something like mm, that. Absolutely. And then it ends up being a better place anyway. So, uh, and I love your point about the ritual and magic part because yeah, like, why are you doing this magic? Why are you doing this, either the ceremonial rite or the spell or whatever you're doing? You're doing it because there is something, whether on the level of material need or psychic need or spiritual need, and desire is a form of need that is motivating you, impelling you through the unconscious to seek completeness. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's sort of like, and even, you know, even since for some reason, maybe it's because of the Mercury thing, for some reason, the runes have crept in sneakily to this podcast. And it's weird because I rarely talk about runes on the podcast. So it's really weird. But, um, you know, there's a rune called need. And you, that rune is really useful to draw to you what you need when you're suffering through a situation where you, of deprivation. It's like nature abhors a vacuum. That makes a great deal of sense. That makes a great deal of sense. And, I, you know, I just really love that idea that the magician, you know, approaches the hierophant and tries to work within the system in some way to get what is beneficial for himself. <laughs> well, what about this, too? I mean, you know, you're describing uh, the relationship from one approach, right, mm -hmm. where the magician approaches the hero font, and you could almost consider the magician to be the magician isn't green. He's not a neophyte. The magician is like an adept coming to the hero font, who's obviously like the master and is he's you know, he's seeking that deeper knowledge that the hero font can give or the deeper skill sets or the initiation perhaps that will transform that magician perhaps into a hierophant in their own right at some point. But if we look at it conversely, most of these human traditions, uh, at least mythically, originate in a Promethean theft of fire right. or esoteric knowledge and power uh, from the gods uh, that is passed to humankind and, and eventually um, calcinates and becomes a tradition, becomes becomes uh, a tradition that 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 then becomes a manifestation of the very thing that was stolen from <laughs> and then eventually it comes to a point where through us uh, the sort of neoplatonic uh reversion where there's a new thief that comes to steal or or even rightfully acquire and create a new tradition right i think there's something very interesting going on there because hierophant of course is the revealer of the sacred right that's what that word means and there's something in there in the you know in the orphic hymns there's all this kind of um language around that term heros uh the sacred often in the sort of con contest of offering sacred words and I often like to think about the idea that in sacrifice, you know, we sacrifice things, we sacrifice, you know, uh, materia to the gods, but we also offer the sacrifice of language. And to me, this is an idea that has been really dogging me for months since starting that PGM class. And I don't know if you remember, Dom, but there was a there was a class right in the beginning where Jack talked about uh, offering the gods the praise, offering them, that is the offering, the words of praise, right? And to me, you bring together this mercurial figure who is nothing but words <laughs> and this hierophant who is a broker of relationship with the gods, you know, and each has something the other wants at some level. Well, in the Hymnodia Crypte, in the Hermetica, it speaks about the sacrifice of speech mm -hmm. or the spoken sacrifice. 
Um, in the Hermetic Federation, we have something like that. And the idea is that there is this um, noetic sacrifice for noetic gods. You know, the sacrifice is the type of sacrifice is dependent upon the mode of reality that we're interacting with. So if we're approaching the material archons or the material gods, material sacrifices may be more appropriate for psychic, for the psychic or cosmic gods, a psychic sacrifice, but for a holy, a holy, um, for the noose and for the hypercosmoid, mm -hmm. it would be, it would be a noetic or a prayerful spoken sacrifice because the gods essentially are self-originate and self dependent. They don't need anything from human beings. So the, the expression of, of, uh, spoken, of the spoken praise, the spoken sacrifice, is actually an acknowledgement of the presence of the God within the adherent. It's actually the God within the human speaking back to the God within the heavens. Yes, it's offering the creations of the created. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's the Poimandris, in the Poimandris prayer, they, uh, it said, accept this pure offering of speech from a soul and a heart which rises to you. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. that's right, that's right. Mm -hmm. um, and I also wanted to mention, you know, another thing that your um, analogy with the five brought to mind is, you know, magician really comes from, um, mag, you know, magos uh, in Greek, but that's just the Greek rendering of the name for a Zoroastrian priest. So the name magician actually originates in the name for a hierophant or priest of the Zoroastrian religion, and that's especially significant because that religion is really um, the root of Christianity, uh, and, and it was a profound influence on, on Judaism and Christianity, and of course, uh, Islam as well, because of its proximity. And then additionally, Zoroastrianism was a profound influence on Buddhism. Uh, Shingon Buddhism actually acknowledges this. And, and uh, so we have this, it's interesting, the word for magician actually originates in the word for priest of one of the world's oldest uh, religions. Oh, no kidding. That's fascinating. Yeah, and fire. It's a, it's a religion of fire. It's a original religion of light. So again, there's this, um, uh, I mentioned this in a recent podcast, there's a, a Christian term used more by the Orthodox, but originally it was more universally used, umusios, you know, of one essence. And I think when we're looking at the fool, the magician, the hierophant, the hermit, we're dealing with different modes of one of one kind of one being or one state. You know, the hermit is like the the forest monk or the desert anchorite, um, and then you have the hierophant in, in within the established tradition, and then you have the magician, the vagabond. But for instance, in Egypt, um, most of the priests would be in the temple for half the year, and then they would be um, many of them would be doing magical work what like we see in the PGM uh, for local communities for the other portion of the year for their keep. So on the one so in that for in that example you quite literally have somebody on one hand in the temple practice and then on the other side of the year, which relates to the decans, acting in this sort of shamanic magical capacity. That's fascinating. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well <laughs> <laughs> we're running up on about two hours so i think <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> no man, I, <laughs> I think it was a great conversation though <laughs> oh yeah absolutely it was fantastic super fun you're really easy to talk to Susie. so in staying with the form of podcasts let's let's end it how we should so where can people 
find what you're doing, Susie. And you've got a lot going on, like you mentioned at the beginning, but let's let's kind yes, of summarize. Yes. So I guess the primary place to find me is uh, www.tsusanchang.com. And then people can also, of course, find the Fortune's Wheelhouse podcast anywhere they're listening to podcasts, including wherever they're listening to this podcast right now. Just look up Fortune's Wheelhouse. Then I also have my Etsy store where you can buy merch if you're so inclined. Uh, it's www.etsy.com slash shop slash tarotista. And um, oh, I think we'll leave it there. <laughs> there's other there's <laughs> other places, but oh, actually social media, right. So um, social media on Instagram and Twitter, I'm T. Susan Chang. Generally on Facebook, I encourage people to reach out to me at the Fortunes Wheelhouse Academy group, which is a officially unofficial fan group, but it's got like a thousand members and I post there every day. So that's that's usually where I am. My mind is boggled by how much you juggle. <laughs> I don't like... You do a lot. <laughs> it does seem that way, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, it was it was it was great. We loved having you on and we would love to have you on again in the future. That would be great. Thanks, guys. That was a fun one. It really was. We really enjoyed this delightful guest and um, boy, what an eloquent, effusive, intelligent speaker. You know, I really felt like in awe of her intellect. Yeah, she's super fun. I mean, if you get a chance to listen to her on any of her other million appearances and other podcasts and her own podcast, just a fun, super knowledgeable lady. I mean, she knows her stuff when it comes to tarot. She, uh, She eats it, she breathes it. And, uh, you know, it shows you, you put in the work, you reap the rewards. Absolutely. You could see the influence of Hermes on her mind um, and the way that the radiations of his penuma cause the mind to uh, develop and grow and become more than what it was prior to his, prior to his appearance in the person's life. It, it's clearly evident with her. In other words, she's gangster gangster. So, um, you know, I just, I'm really glad she came on. I had such a wonderful time. It was truly great. And I think that our readers, readers, listeners, readers, there's the hermetic thing again. It's all sort of a synesthetic paradigm. Anyway, the, <laughs> our listeners, our listeners should pay attention. If you notice, we have this invocation in the beginning of this episode. And then what happened was and a conversation that took on a life of its own that was sort of um, animated and I would say directed by the, by the uh, hermetic penuma. And this is something to contemplate uh, when you engage with Hermes or Mercurius or any of his other um, manifestations sincerely. If the God chooses to, he may bless you for his prerogative with uh, intellective effluences that uh, embrace your consciousness and guide it in um, amazing, interesting, poetic, profound ways. On that point, let's move into the book review. I think you've got a good one this week. What is it? What do you got? Yeah, this book is really neat. Um, It's called 
Hunting Wisdom, a Bacchic Orphic Diviner's Manual. This is written by a Dionysian diviner uh, and obviously devotee, H. Jeremiah Lewis. Um, he serves his community under the name Sanion, um, and it, it is a essentially Greek Reconstructionist work, and he calls it, or they call it, the Starry Bull tradition. This book lays a foundation and protocols for ancient Greek inspired divination, um, but it but it is not slavish to ancient sources. Rather, it also builds upon them in a Dionysian context with new work you can do. Uh, I'll give you some examples of some of the topics touched upon within this. Um, it gives you first, there there is a preparation, so it helps you understand how to prepare for divination, including um, ideas of purity, spiritual discernment, um, an offering rite, cleansing and consecration. And then uh, this little oracle book, the oracle book of Sanion, the Orfeo Telest touches on things such as the Oracle of the Coins, the Starry Bull Alphabet Oracle, how to make your very own bibliomantic system. There's cloth divining in here. There is a grape leaf oracle. There's a prognostic for thunder by the hours of the day. Pyromancy is involved here. Uh, Phallomantia, personal favorite. Oracle of Fanes, another one I love. Even using toys as divination tools. The appendix contains miscellaneous sources on Bacchic Orphic purity regulations. A little bit about the author. It, this book is a, is a substantial book too. Uh, it weighs in at 270 pages. This author has written many other interesting works that I recommend people check out. There are his entire... His entire aim primarily seems to be Bacchic Orphism, and his emphasis, probably due to his daimon, is um, upon the god Dionysus. Some other books that he's written are Spirits of Initiation, which is about um, the initiation of Dionysus from the satyr's mouth, a book on Greco-Egyptian polytheism called The Balance of Two Lands, The Heart of the Labyrinth, Echoes of Alexandria, uh, and more. I was very impressed with this work. It is made to be used, so it is a practical book. And I, at this point in my life, favor practicality over intellectuality. However, there is plenty of pithy uh, intellectual contemplation of inspirations garnered from ancient sources in in it as well. I mean, if you're into divination, I recommend this if the um, Hellenic mysteries hold interest for you. Um, it's just an intriguing, wonderful, useful little tome. And the name and author? Hunting Wisdom, a Bacchic Orphic Diviner's Manual by H. Jeremiah Lewis. Awesome. That really actually sounds super interesting. Yeah, I know you. You're just going to end up buying Probably. it. Probably. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for doing that. Big thanks to our supporters. Uh, we, we love you. Big thanks to our listeners. We love you wherever you are, whether in you know um, Eastern Europe or Korea or USA um, or UK or Africa or anywhere else. We love you. We're grateful for you. You know that this is a labor of love um, done in service of the divine, and uh, we don't have ulterior motives. 
Okay, nicely said. You can uh, keep up with this on Facebook, of course, YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. So anywhere you find podcasts, you can find us. And again, thank you very much. We appreciate you. And we will see you in the next episode. Yeah, see you guys next time. Keep your feet on the ground. Stay humble. Seek the divine. Seek the mysteries. Boom. Boom.